Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast which was set up to raise awareness of and tackle the stigma surrounding mental health not only within the UK where I'm based but around the world. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Zoe who is the CEO of City Mental Health Alliance Hong Kong. Hi Zoe. Hi Steve. So, first of all, Zoe, just for the listeners, would you be able to give a bit of background about who you are and then move on to discussing the work done by the City Mental Health Alliance? Yes, of course. And thank you very much for the opportunity to to chat today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, speaking from Hong Kong as well. So um, yeah, I started off my background, I started off with a first degree in psychology and I then moved into research. So I'm a researcher by background, my CV. Um, I've been in Hong Kong for about uh, for five years now. And four years ago, the opportunity came up to launch the City Mental Health Alliance um, in Hong Kong, which was originally a UK organization. And um, to be part of a wider program of community change, really, to support mental health in Hong Kong. So, so I jumped at the chance. And so now what I do is um, I lead the City Mental Health Alliance. Um, I also have a research role as an adjunct and senior researcher at the University of Hong Kong. I'm also an instructor in mental health first aid. And um, I'm completing my master's in counselling um, because I really <laughs> enjoy the clinical aspect of the work as well. So that's me. Wow, um, that that is a lot, and you've got a wide variety in terms of what you've experienced, which is just fa- fascinating. And I don't think many people have that. Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I guess I'm one of those people that I'm uh, I like input. My my husband says I like input. I'm like um, <laughs> I I like knowledge and things. <laughs> I think I'm in the advantageous position of starting off as a researcher and I find a lot of topics really interesting and mental health fascinating you know on a personal level there's many reasons why one might go into it but on the modern slavery side as well I think it's it's you know there are commonalities across the work that I do around mental health and I've done some um, worked on some reports with other organizations around mental health and survivors of modern slavery and things and I think that's um that's another really important area. Um, and, I, and I do think that mental health is, is something that's incredibly important. And moving to Hong Kong, it was, it was so interesting because I'd stepped away from mental health for a few years and, and worked on international development. And then just moving here, um, and I have young children as well. So seeing the impact of, of mental health on family, friends, um, on those around me and coming to Hong Kong and seeing that actually the conversation was a little bit different here and the way people talk about mental health was a little bit different was really, really interesting and and something that I felt I needed to learn more about. And so I was keen to get involved with City Mental Health Alliance and to say, well, how can we actually be part of the change and be part of the community raising awareness and involvement and creating better structures to support people and I have to say the the journey started pre-pandemic and we've all learned a lot during the pandemic but it's certainly um, a topic that's evolving and continuing. It absolutely is evolving and I think Covid has accelerated the evolving process around talking about mental health and I know 
the City Mental Health Alliance, there's a specific focus on corporate workplaces. Yeah. Yeah. How is mental health perceived within the corporate workplace? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I think I think it's changing. And as we just spoke about, I do think that the COVID has been uh, maybe it's done and been somewhat helpful if it's done anything um, for the world. Um, I think five years ago when we um, started City Mental Health Alliance, or four years ago, um, there were lots of conversations around, you know, what is mental health? What do we mean by mental health? There were lots of conversations around return on investment and what's it going to mean if I invest in my employees? What's it going to cost me and what's going to be the output? But I, I, I do think that there is a recognition that this is about people and we talk a lot in our organization about the human case and about the business case and I think it used to be about the business case but I think people now recognize that really it's about the human case and if you look at the lot of the corporates that we work with a lot of companies and this is true for any company really a company's key asset is your people and so what you need to do is you need to look after your people and work shouldn't be a place where people just exist or survive there are so many aspects of work that are good for mental health if you think about the social aspect if you think about the community angle meaning and purpose productivity work can be amazing and workplaces should be a place where employees can thrive um, but historically it's not. And we also know that if you look at, for example, in Hong Kong, Hong Kong's got some of the longest working hours in the world. So there was a UBS survey a couple of years ago that estimated it was 50.1 hours a week. Now that's on average. Wow. So if you think about that, there's a lot of people that are working less than that, but there's a lot of people that are working a lot more than that. And I think it also plays into the fact that and I was not aware of this until I moved, I moved to Asia, but it plays into this idea that actually we should be on all the time because people are taking conference calls late at night. It's fairly typical for people to have conference calls with Australia in the morning and say the US, particularly if you work for a US based company in the evening, and that becomes commonplace. And we also know that, you know, this idea around face or FaceTime is very common, that people need to be seen to be working. And I think that exists everywhere. But here, I think it's it's really quite acute. So when we talk about mental health, there's a lot of stresses. We also know that, you know, Hong Kong is a really, really expensive place to live. And it's also one of the most densely populated. And so lots of people live in very small apartments. And that means that the things that we can do to keep ourselves well um, are, are, often, are often harder. And so sometimes work is a place where people go to socialize, particularly for young people actually, because they're living with other people at home. And so during the pandemic, when we had lots of people working from home, working remotely, that's quite different here to what it is in say somewhere like the UK, you can work in mm -hmm. a spare room here. It, it, particularly if you're a young if you're a young person you're probably sitting cross-legged on your bed with a laptop if you're lucky maybe balanced on the fridge so all of those things I don't think I don't think people really quite understand and, and appreciate that um so I think that there is a growing awareness around those kind of things um and I also think that when we first started there wasn't as much 
understanding and awareness um yeah. and that's certainly that's certainly growing and changing um and then the other thing that um i've noticed is that when people talk about mental health and i think this is growing it's changing globally but when people talk about mental health often it's equated with mental ill health and some of that is a language thing um some of it's an awareness thing and some of it is just because that's the way people have grown up um to understand the concept but we know that you know mental health is on a spectrum everyone has mental health um and it fluctuates over days weeks months it's normal to go up and down a spectrum and to fluctuate but what i noticed is that often people equate good mental health with mental ill health and i think that's often where overtones of stigma come in and things like that because people don't really understand what it means and so that's one of the the key things that we started off with here is you know trying to educate and help people understand much more around well what do we actually mean by mental health what is the world health organization definition of good mental health and the fact that everyone has it um and so i think i think we're making inroads into changing that but that was certainly eye-opening for me when I first um, started to understand much more around things in Asia and coming from a very UK-centric viewpoint. Yeah I mean uh, I imagine that the way mental health is talked about and perceived differs between cultures so I imagine it differs compared to the UK and Hong Kong, the way mental health is perceived, the way it's talked about. And mm -hmm. it's interesting when you mentioned about we need to be seen to be working. Now, before COVID, obviously, we were all going into the office. I mean, I was working from, from home pre-COVID because of the nature of the work that I do. But there is still that pressure that you need to be seen to be working. Yep. But now with COVID, a lot of people have been working from home for the best part of 12 months. Do you feel that that perception of employees need to see you working? Because if they can't see you working, then you're slacking off and you're not doing your job. Do you think that that has changed slightly due to COVID and people working from home and people are starting to have more of a work-life balance? Um, I, I do think the perception is changing. Whether people are having more of a work-life balance, I'm slightly jury out on that, um, at least here anyway. I, I, think, I think for sure, um, before COVID, there was a... Um, and I don't have evidence for this, but the, the general sort of anecdotal evidence that was um, I was sort of relying on was kind of saying that people are not trusted to work from home, that people need to be in the office yeah. because they can be managed better, because people can see um, that they're working. And there's a general the general sense of that, that actually it seemed to be the more senior you get, the more that you are able to work from home because people trust you, etc. I think there's that, that, but I do think there is also an element of, you know, um, young people moving into the workplace. There is an element of training. There are lots of jobs that require social interactions and all those kind of things. Um, and that's where the workplace becomes really, really important. And, and as we know, the workplace is really important for a number of reasons. But I think that when it came to working from home, it wasn't really 
certainly here it wasn't a thing and as I and, and as I alluded to earlier I don't think it's as comfortable to do that necessarily because people don't have back gardens here and you know all, all the rest of it so it's not as done as much um, but then there was no flexibility around that so lots of companies didn't necessarily have a flexible working policy or a policy for parents um, around flexible work around children. I think the pandemic has been amazing in one respect because it has highlighted all of these things and it's shown to employers that you can trust employees, that people are able to work autonomously, they are able to work in their own hours. It is possible for someone to log on at 11am because they are you know, homeschooling their child until then and then they work in the evening or whatever and I think that has been that has been amazing for so many reasons my my fear is that actually that doesn't create a better work-life balance it just adds in more juggle and my other fear is that when we all return to the workplace everyone will just go it's great we learned a lot and then we just go back to our old patterns and ways of working I hope we don't and I'm trying to, you know, raise awareness around how we make sure that we don't. But I'm, you know, I hope that we all learn for the long term from this global experiment that is the pandemic. Yeah, that was going to be my next question in terms of is the workplace of yesterday still going to be applicable when we come out of the pandemic and we move forward? Or are we going to have more of a, a hybrid version whereby, particularly over here in the UK, you go into the office, say, two days a week, you work from home three days a week, and you can have a bit more flexibility rather than having to just go straight back to work in five days a week in an office. I think quite a few people within the UK are going to be very anxious about going back to work. They've got used to working from home um and there's all of those issues to overcome um i mean the flip side to that is that if we do go back to a workplace how can we improve awareness around workplace mental health so we don't revert back to how we were doing things pre-pandemic Yeah, good question. Um, to answer the first part of your question, I um, is the office of the past gone? I think a lot of people are going to have a lot of very different opinions on this and it will vary depending on where you come from. So, I mean, at least here, some workplaces have gone back. Others are still operating a kind of hybrid policy. And anecdotally, I'm hearing of people who actually don't want to go back to the workplace. And there may be a couple of reasons for that. Perhaps people are now used to working from home and it suits them. But there is also perhaps another end, and there's a spectrum here, but perhaps the other end of the spectrum is that people have become used to working from home. Maybe people, you know, once we're feeling lonely, now maybe a little bit socially anxious. We need to actually consider what it means for people to leave a position of comfort and security and physically feeling safe and enter into a world where perhaps they are not feeling as safe. And I think that's an important point and employers need to be aware of that 
and, and respect that. Um, how do we improve awareness on workplace mental health? I, I mean, that's a general question. It's a lot of the work that, that we do. I think during the pandemic, what's happened is that there has been a lot of movement towards um, line managers and um, encouraging people to check in, to check in on Zoom, to have those times to support each other. And that's all great. Um, what I think we need to do, though, is we need to also recognise that those people who are doing the supporting themselves need to be supported, if you see what I mean. So if, if you are a company and you are saying, line managers, you now to need to make sure that all of your staff are... Um, are supported, that you are checking in with them regularly, etc. Great. But are we training our line managers to be able to do that? Are our line managers receiving the relevant support to be able to do that? And the other thing is, are we just adding more stress because we are now saying, oh, you need to deliver everything that you were delivering before, but you also need to do it in a really a different work environment at home. Oh, and can you also do this other stuff that we're requiring of you now? So I think we need to be aware of what a changed working environment means for someone to be working in that way. And the pressures are different and the stresses are different. So for example, if you take um, quarantine in, in Hong Kong, at the moment we have a 21 day quarantine um, to enter into the country. And I've just done it with two young children. So, you know, it's, um, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> But what? Um, but we've just released um, a, a fact sheet on this because I think for employers it's really important to understand that actually if someone is, and and someone can be asked to go to a government facility to quarantine as well if you're a close contact in the community, but if someone's working in that environment you might not feel confident you might not have the the IT structure you might not even um, have time you might be homeschooling your kids you might not have childcare all of those things. So quarantine is just a kind of microcosm environment. It's just an example of what might be going on for people back home. And we need to understand that when someone's working from home, they may have a plethora of other stuff happening. And in Hong Kong in particular, you might be living with other members of the family that are um, an older generation, say. Now they are more at risk from the virus. And so you are also shielding all of these things. So when it comes to an employer it's around the same thing as it does in general mental health but it's around listening to your staff it's around understanding what people are experiencing understanding what they're going through and being able to take that feedback and say okay well how can we work with you through this and we did some research last summer and um there were 900 employees and we found that the things that people value the most were flexibility and autonomy and that's not to say that people um won't work any less in actual fact anecdotally people work longer hours at home because we're, we're, we're a bit worried that actually we won't be seen to be doing the work. So we end up working more. So we need to look after our employees, but we need to provide them with the flexibility, the autonomy, the trust, and those policies to be able to say, okay, recognizing that you've got all this stuff going on, how can we be flexible as a team and as a company to support you? And I and in Hong Kong, our schools have not been back full time since, since February of wow. last year. So I'm on month 15 of an element of homeschooling. That's the, same as many, that's the same as many families. So we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So I think all of that 
is important to recognize. That said, it's, you know, it's a lot for the employer to, to take on. So I think it's the same as what we would say. There's many, many ways that we can help to improve mental health in the workplace. And I can run through those, but I would say it's about, you know, leadership from the top, role modeling, um, seniors being, senior leadership, being able to take that responsibility, having it as a boardroom priority and being able to, to, to stand up to that. And if you can have some of that role modeling supporting staff at every level listening to the staff understanding their concerns and then being able to implement that in a policy then i think that that is what engenders a situation of trust and autonomy and that's what keeps staff well and ultimately remaining with the company yeah um i certainly feel your pain being on month 15 of homeschooling yeah, um, yeah. not even talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, does it essentially now have to be a two-way street between employees and employees? Because I, I think for too long it's all been the employer takes from the employee. They take, take, take. Not very often do they give back. Now, that might be a controversial view. I I don't know, but does it need to be more of a two-way street in that the employee feels confident enough to go to the employer and say, look, we've obviously been working from home throughout COVID. Would you be willing or at least consider the idea of having more flexible working in terms of office and home? rather than an employer saying right from this day everyone's back in end of discussion so i guess my question is how important is communication between the employer and the employee in terms of reducing the stigma around mental health within the workplace i think it's extremely it's extremely important right i think where we used to be on workplace mental health is the idea that you are in a stressful working environment, particularly within certain types of organisations but or certain industries, but you're in a stressful workplace environment and your employees are there and we're going to give them a fruit basket and everyone's going to feel a bit better. We are, we are way beyond the sticking plaster, the, the fruit basket, all of those kind of things. And I think that actually the younger younger generations that move into the workplace are a more discerning employee in that they are the ones that are starting to recognize more that actually this is about the long term this is about my well-being this is about choosing an employer that's going to work for me as well as I'm going to work for them because it's, it's ultimately a reciprocal relationship and if you don't have that and you have employees that are burning out, we know the, de the detrimental consequences on the individual from workplace mental health stress, never mind mental ill health. And that's potentially bad for the employer as well as the employee. And we need to stop those kind of things from happening. So it is two-way street. And I think that I, I, my my fear sometimes is that what we've got is a situation where we are working, we, not we as a company, but in general, um, 
companies are saying, okay, staff, we're going to offer yoga at lunchtime, or we're going to offer a certain number of things, you should take up those benefits, um, and you'll feel better. But if we as organizations are not working to reduce the stress points in an organization and reduce those problems that are causing that stress, then you can do all the yoga you want at lunchtime, but it's not going to make you any less stress if you're working incredibly long hours in very poor working conditions. So we actually need to get better at addressing the working conditions to support employees and also provide employees with the ability and the time and space to take up those strategies that support their own good mental health. Does that make sense? So it is a two-way street. Um, and that's where role modeling comes in, because if you are um, a senior leader in an organization and you take a lunch break and you say, I'm taking a lunch break today and then I'm leaving at five o'clock. I'm not going to work over the weekend. I'm going to have dinner with my kids and then I'm going to take my kids to a football match or whatever it is. That's really hard because you need to be able to be in a position where you don't have you don't have a deadline to be able to do that and then send the message to your staff look i'm doing this and so should you because well-being is valued because we value you as employees because ultimately we know and it's the whole olympic athlete um, analogy we know that if you continue to perform in an incredibly stressful way ultimately you're not going to be able to continue to perform we need those down times as much as if not more than those stress points and you, you know it's the whole good stress bad stress thing so we need to be able to provide that to employees as well so it is it is definitely a two-way street and i oh, i think that people are starting to recognize that um the, the, the challenge is, of course, that it's hard because if you're a competitive employer working in a competitive market, you want to be able to, to price competitively. And for that, you're going to push your staff. So it's a, it's a fine balance. And the balance comes through feedback and learning and listening to people and being able to understand where your staff's pressures are and where we can resource appropriately. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with with all of that. And I know, particularly in the legal profession, the new ones that are applying for training contracts, they are now looking more at how the firm runs, how the firm operates, and if they are a good fit with their own personality. Whereas mm. I think previously in the past, everyone wanted a training contract to become a solicitor so they would literally apply to everywhere and anywhere just to get one qualify and then they would make their decisions at that stage in their career mm. um, so I definitely think there has been a shift on as you say the younger generation really keen to not just apply to any company but to apply to a company that matches with their own beliefs and then essentially there is more of a percentage chance that they would remain with that firm for the long-term future rather than just going there getting what they want and then moving on yeah for sure and there's research from the uk that will actually back that up and say that people are becoming more discerning 
And anecdotally, and I, I don't have, um, again, research to quote this, but anecdotally, I'm hearing that during the pandemic, we're seeing an increasing number of um, people, and I'm hearing more men than women, who are looking at their life at the moment and going, actually, is this working for me? And there's, a, you know, people who are now working from home, but who are looking at that work-life balance and going, is this appropriate? Can I afford to take a pay cut and do something either more meaningful or just work less hours or redress the balance in some way? And so maybe, maybe the pandemic as a forced kind of interruption in everyone's lives could for some people certainly is a way of just reassessing values and saying am I doing those things that are actually what I wanted to be doing and now that you know there's a pause in the rat race am I doing am I doing things in the best way that I can so maybe that's a positive and I think that that's what people coming through into the workplace um, are more discerning on what I will say though is I do think that there is definitely an area of support for young people entering the workforce, because if you look at university graduates now in the pandemic, they've been online for, you know, quite yep. some time and people that are at home, they've lost out on a lot of social contact, etc. But also coming into the workplace, particularly for your first job, or even if it's not your first job, it's a tough place to be. And you remove the element of social contact, you remove that day to day interaction with your line manager, that that's really hard. And so I think we need to provide young people with the skills, the tools, not just those entering the workforce, but all the way through school, actually, provide young people with the skills and the tools and the resources to know what works for them in terms of their own good mental health, to be able to provide them with awareness and understanding around what good mental health is and what mental ill health is and, and, and how we fluctuate in an awareness of what that means in, in ourselves. And then we also need to decrease the stigma so that, do you know what, it's okay if someone is is not doing so great then then they can put their hand up and go actually I'm really struggling because you know chances are statistically a lot of us will do so I think we just need to get better at raising that awareness and I hope that Covid and its pauses and interruptions has given a chance to reflect on that level. Yeah I, I definitely think Covid has given us the ability to slow our lives down and realise what is truly important to us and what isn't and things that we can live without. So for instance, before the pandemic, I think a lot of people were very materialistic in terms of the flashy cars, flashy watches, going on these big expensive holidays. And I'm sure everyone will be going on holidays once the pandemic is over but I think the way that we look at a holiday will be very different now to before because of having that self-reflection and due to the pandemic we've we've now realized well actually family and friends are the most important and not say buying a 120 grand car or going on huge extravagant holidays 
Um, I think there may be a shift in people's perceptions on life and that they will start to think of mental health being interlinked with physical health because for so long there seems to have been that distinction between the two and from talking to a, a previous guest in America who, who summed it up quite well in the sense that if you break your leg, break your arm, you come out with a cast and you're a child and you go to school, everyone's around you with a biro and a ballpoint pen because they want to sign your cast. You are literally, um, it's, it's as if you've been in a fight, you've, you've come out and everyone thinks you're the hero and loves you for it and they want to sign that cast. Whereas if you suffer with mental health and you go into a mental health hospital or you try and seek uh, mental health support, when you try and discuss that with someone, the other person clams up, they get sweaty palms, they don't know what to say because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing and offending that person. Um, so, I mean, my hope is that we start to realise that there is like no health without mental health we need to start realizing that we need to start reducing the stigma and in terms of ways that we can tackle the stigma obviously you mentioned one in terms of education within schools do you feel that the film and tv industry could do something towards reducing the stigma around mental health oh good question i think that there is um and I'm probably not as up on my my recent, you know, films and things like that. Um, if you look at so the so the work that I used to do with um, with the BBC a while ago was around um, healthcare communication and and governance communication and saying can we use mass media programming to change people's perceptions on things, and um, one of which was you know could we for example. Um, use a radio program in Ethiopia to encourage people to get a vaccination or to encourage them to to continue breastfeeding for longer, for example. So um, there is evidence that actually these kind of communications work and that's what can be done quite successfully if you look at say you know EastEnders and um, the, the storyline about HIV and, and AIDS in the 90s these kind of things can be done very successfully in reducing stigma. I think that the the thing about and there is obviously there's massive campaigns in the UK that have worked very, very successfully, like time to change campaigns, etc. They they've all been really, really great. I think that sometimes there are entrenched difficulties. I think that we need to it's it's about normalization, right? It's about recognition that I um, you know, there will be a percentage of people that experience severe mental ill health there will be a percentage of people that don't but chances are most people are on the spectrum somewhere in the middle and experience fluctuations in their life and that actually you know it's normal to feel sad it's normal to feel stressed at these time points it's normal to respond in this way so i think if the mass media can use much more of a portrayal around normalization and normalization of events and normalization of response to events and also help seeking behavior because often what we find is that people don't 
seek help. And in Hong Kong, certainly 74% of people, I think it's 74% of people said that they won't seek help if they experience mental ill health, which is, which is huge. And we know that public health systems here are not adequate to support people with long waiting lists, et cetera, anyway. And so how do we normalize that experience of, of help seeking? So I think that that is maybe what the media can do. And I think it is changing. And um, I, I think here, um, perhaps there is more that can be done for sure. Um, and around the, the thing is one of the hardest things to shift, and this is what I found with BBC work is, is this idea around cultural norms. How do you shift a cultural norm? Um, and more than that, how do, you, how do you measure when you've shifted the cultural norm? So I do think definitely there is a role of media um, and it's, there's a huge role in normalization, using mass media as a way of normalizing to shift a cultural norm. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and what would your, what's your future vision in terms of how mental health is perceived on a global scale? What would you like to see? Um, I think I think exactly that that we so the vision that we have as an organization is that you know people are able to talk about mental health without fear and um, without fear of stigma and I think if we could achieve that I think that globally there are a lack of resources on mental health and we can't resource everything for sure but there does need to be an understanding that actually mental health is so intrinsically linked with your physical health and with your financial health and with so many other components. I think there needs to be a greater input of resources on supporting people who are experiencing mental ill health. There needs to be a greater recognition and awareness of how to support our own good mental health and what that looks like. And I think for young people, I'm thinking about my children, how do we better support young people to, we, you know, schools nowadays will teach skill sets rather than knowledge bases because we need to prepare our children of the future we don't know what jobs they're going to be doing and it's the same we don't know what stresses they're going to face so we need to be able to provide them with the skills and the tools to be able to face those stresses in the future and then we also need to provide people with the ability to have those conversations to create um a family environment where people are able to have those conversations, to create an environment where kids are able to talk openly about mental health at school and in the workplace. And that this is just normal and it's normal and accepted in the same way that we talk about physical health. Like, you know, there are so many different devices out there that we can track the number of steps that we do a day and diet work and all those kind of things. But actually when it comes to mental health, it's a little bit, you know, people don't publicize as much the apps they've got on their phone. It's, it's you know, it's a little yeah. bit covered up. So my vision is that there is a greater emphasis placed on that because if you can support people's mental health, then actually it relates to so many other areas, then so many other areas will be better supported. Yeah, I could not agree anymore um, with that vision. and. Finally, we always end on a lighthearted question. Um, and the most popular lighthearted question at the moment is that 
if a movie director came up to you and said that they want to do a film about your life and <laughs> you could pick the actor to play you, who would it be and why? Oh, God, I do not know how to answer that question. Um, oh, God, I really don't know how to answer that question. Um, the only person that's coming to mind right now is hilariously Julia Roberts. Um, not because I look like anything, anything like her. Um, <laughs> um, but because I think she's a great actress and she um, and she portrays people. So I'm thinking of Erin Brockovich, but my life is not like Erin Brockovich either. So um, <laughs> that's the only thing that comes to mind right now, um, because I would like to look like Julia Roberts. And therefore, I would like Julia Roberts to portray me in the movie. Well... It's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Zoe, and I'm sure that the listeners will have found it very insightful, the episode. Um, so once again, thank you for being on. And if, if anyone wants to reach out to you after they've listened to this, how would they be able to get in touch with you? The best way is to go to our website, which is um, cmhahk.org. Um, and again, thank you for being a guest. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you for thank you for having me and letting me waffle on. It's a real pleasure to speak to you.